invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 today. I've been preaching through the letters to Timothy on Sundays here at the chapel, and I started in in 2 Timothy, which is odd, but uh, that's where I started because there's a pivotal verse that I think summarizes really the New Testament in a lot of ways, and that is 2 Timothy 3.16. Who can quote that verse? 2 Timothy 3.16. Asked that for the first time last week, and somebody right about there quoted the verse. Nobody? Second Timothy. Don't read it. Don't cheat. Anybody quote Second Timothy three sixteen? That's it. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So it's God breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Then you could go on to verse seventeen, so that. The man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. So that's a pivotal thing about understanding Scripture and understanding it's God-breathed. And we're going to get another pivotal verse from Paul today when he says, basically, Timothy, here's why I'm writing 1 Timothy to you. It's about the church. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word church. A lot of people think of a brick building with a steeple on the top. This building is block building. we got a steeple. So some people say, well, that's a church. Well, this isn't the church. Where's the church? Us. Who said that? Good answer. We're the church. And so I took guitar lessons one time from a guy that I finally realized this isn't going to go well. Uh, first of all, I broke a string just tuning my guitar at the first lesson. Then when we started playing, he was teaching me basically, Josh, I was learning. Doom, 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 doom. It took me about seven weeks to learn that. And I thought there's not a single song that goes like that. But I had a spiritual conversation with a guy because he claimed to be a believer. So I just asked him one day, I said, hey, Mr. Man, where do you go to church? He said, I don't go to church. I thought, well, that's interesting. You tell me you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't go to church. He said, no, I watch TV. I thought, well, I watch TV too. But I'm not calling that church. You know, I don't know what Seinfeld's doing for me to help me spiritually. But I know what he meant. He meant, you know what, I can stay at home in my bathrobe and flip channels, catch three sermons on Sunday morning. I don't have to deal with the crowds or, as some people would say, the hypocrites at church. And I think, unfortunately, in this culture, church has become somewhat optional even for believers. The writer of Hebrews chapter 10 said, verse 25, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some but all the more encourage one another as you see the day approaching. And so there's a benefit to being the church. We don't become isolated little islands that are just taking in podcasts. And some of those are good. I encourage you. There's some podcasts that really would help you during the week to strengthen you. There's some others that aren't good. You've got to become discerning about what you listen to. But the church is vital. The church is important. And when you realize it's not a building, It's not a place you go. It's us as believers. If you're here this morning and you're a child of God, you're part of the church, the called out ones. So listen to what Paul, here's how Paul puts it to Timothy in chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14. In case you're wondering, Timothy, why did I write this letter? Paul tells him, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. 
But just in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. We're going to continue in a moment. Let me just stop there for the first two points. Paul talks about the proper conduct in the church. And I think it's important to understand what Paul's telling Timothy wasn't new to Timothy, but this letter was somewhat semi-private. Timothy's not the only one that's going to read this letter, is he? No, because we're reading it today. And so I think part of what Paul's writing is a reminder to Timothy, but it's also a validation of Timothy's ministry to say to Timothy these things. That yes, Timothy, I, I really I'm writing this hoping to come to you before long. But just in case I'm delayed getting there, it's important that you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. And then he explains what's the household of God. The household word household could mean dwelling, but more than that, it could mean family. So Paul's not talking about a building. He's talking about the family of God. And then he says, which is the church. The church. That word means called out ones. That means one, men and women who've been walking in this life, who their heart has been quickened. They've come to faith in Christ. They're now part of the church. So we're part of the church. Now you and I may worship in a different building on Sunday morning. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you place your faith in Him. He's your Lord and Savior. Then we're all part of the church. And the church is alive and well on planet earth. And I'm going to tell you more about that in a moment. But just so that you know, the church is not a human institution. The church is God's church. It belongs to God. And he goes on to say, of the living God. In the Old Testament, they had a tent and then they had a building that represented the presence of God. And you wanted to go into the presence of God, you would go to that building. And there was even a part of the building called the Holy of Holies that you weren't allowed to go into because that's where God's Spirit dwelled. Well, at the cross, what happened to that veil that separated man from the Holy of Holies? It was torn. It was torn from top to bottom. We now have access to the very throne room of God. It, and He doesn't dwell anymore in a building. He does, he's not in a tent. He's not in the Holy of Holies. He's in you and He's with us. So Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, the church is an important institution and it's under attack in Ephesus. And believe it or not, it's under attack in our generation. And so Paul is writing some important things for him to understand. It's the household of God. It's the family of God. It's the living God dwelling in and among His people. Then he uses two interesting words. It's the pillar and support. It's pillar and support. Pillar is a post. Support is a foundation, the basis for truth. Now, Paul wasn't in Ephesus when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, but Paul had been to Ephesus. He had established the church there. He had brought faith into Timothy. Timothy had been influenced by a godly grandmother, a godly mother, but he's come to faith, and Paul had discipled him for years. And one of the things that was in Ephesus was a temple to Diana or Artemis. Artemis if you're Greek, Diana if you're Roman. And I think Paul is remembering that. And the imagery that he uses reminds us 
of Diana's temple in Ephesus. And scholars tell us it had 127 pillars around this building. Each pillar was donated by a king of the region. And they had gold inlay and jewels, costly jewels. In fact, if you go to Turkey today, you can visit the ruins of Diana's temple. The, the temple held up and supported the building. And so what Paul is saying, he's using that imagery to say, okay, church, here's what our job is. Our job is to be the pillar and supporter, not of a building, but of the truth. Where do we find truth? Right here. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So church, here's the mission that Paul has given Timothy in the first century. It's the mission that Paul would give us today, and certainly God's given us today. And that is, as the church, as a believer, we're to be the pillar and the support of the truth. We live in a generation that doesn't get truth. We live in a generation where politicians, I heard one say, you haven't heard my version of the truth. That's because in some people's minds, truth is relative. No, truth is absolute. And here it is. Here's how you know. If you ask the question, well, how am I going to do that? How do we uphold the truth? Well, I've got seven for you. There, You can make notes in your bulletin. That's what those seven blanks are for. We're not promoting man's wisdom or creativity or ingenuity or innovation or even man's wisdom. As a church, we're supporting as pillars and support the Word of God. First one is this, believe it. This Word is trustworthy. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in case you encounter somebody that says, well, you know, that, that book was written 2,000 years ago. Here's what Hebrews says about it. It's living and active. It's still alive. It's inspired, breathed by God, and it's profitable. It's important to understand you can believe that. It's trustworthy. Second thing is memorize it. Psalm 119.11, a lot of you memorize that. Your word I have hidden or treasured in my heart that I might not sin against God. There's a benefit to memorizing the Word of God. And let me just say, the older you get, the harder it is to memorize. But there are verses I memorized when I was a teenager that I still can call to mind. And I can do the next thing I'm about to say because I've memorized portions of Scripture. And don't use age as an excuse. I'm still memorizing Scripture as an old man. But memorize it. Meditate on it. It's helpful if you've memorized Scripture to be able to meditate on it. You can be driving in the car, stuck in traffic. You can be sitting in waiting on something at a doctor's office or whatever, and you can meditate. You can let it, I call it, percolate in my head. I can think about it. Joshua one twenty eight says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So believe the Word of God, memorize the Word of God, meditate on it, study it. Study the Word of God. Learn to feed yourself. Yes, it's helpful to be a part of a Bible-teaching church that will unpack Scripture for you, that will help feed you. But men and women, as you grow in faith, you've got to learn to feed yourself. We've already looked at this verse, but 2 Timothy 2.15, where we get the Awana verse from. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. So study 
the Word of God. There are so many tools now to help you study the Word of God. There's apps. There's things online. Dig in to the Word of God. I, I would caution you. When, when you have study Bibles that have half the, half the bottom of it is notes on the top half, just remember those are notes. That's not Scripture. Sometimes it's helpful, but be careful that you don't start reading that like it's Scripture. So study the Word of God. Fifth thing, obey it. Paul Harvey said, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. So you can claim you believe something, but if you're not living it, if you're not obeying it, you're, you really don't believe it. That's what you're saying by your life. Luke 11.28. Luke 11.28 says, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So how are we upholding the word of truth? We obey it. We defend it. You've got to know what you believe in order to defend it. Because you're going to be in situations where people are going to say, Well, my Bible says. <laughs> Have you ever been around... Somebody said, my Bible says, and you're like, well, wait, wait a minute. Where does it say that in Scripture? I, I, half my sermon the first Sunday in May, I, I dealt with common sayings that we have in this generation that aren't in Scripture. And you've heard a lot of them. God helps those that help themselves. God will never put on you more than you can handle. Did you know none of that's in Scripture? In fact, it's really contrary to what is in Scripture. And so in order to defend it, you've got to know what you believe. One of the great things about visiting Eastern Europe a number of years ago was they're open now to the gospel. The problem is while they're hearing the gospel, they're also hearing other cult groups that are kind of shading the gospel. And so the best advice I could give them is, listen, if what you hear taught doesn't square with the Word of God, then don't believe it. And learn to defend the faith. You've got to know what you believe in order to defend it. Last thing, another way we uphold it is to proclaim it. Jesus, before he left, issued the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then here's the great thing. And, lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. So proclaim it. Herald it. It's not, that's just not up to the preacher to do or somebody that's on paid church staff. You may have a better impact in some of your friends' lives than I will because you are proclaiming the gospel by the way you live and what comes out of your mouth. Yes, words are necessary. So we uphold the Word of God. You're, you're a steward of this Word. So make sure it's impacting your life and then use it to impact other people's lives. And then he talked about this mystery of godliness. A lot of scholars think this may have been a first century hymn or it may have been a first century confession of faith. And Paul says, by common confession, literally by common understanding and acknowledgement within the church, great is the mystery of godliness. The word great is the Greek word megas. Doesn't that sound like a familiar word? Mega. Mega mystery of godliness. It's, not, it's something that's been hidden that is now, it was concealed, it's now been revealed. And Paul's going to unpack who revealed it. But great is the mystery of godliness. And he's talking about Jesus, who first of all was revealed in the flesh. It doesn't mean, or it does mean to, 
to render apparent. It doesn't mean to bring into existence. Jesus Christ has always existed. Jesus is God. Nothing was created that was apart from Jesus. And so it's not that he was created. It's that he revealed God. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he made God visible. He is God Emmanuel, God with us. And several times through his ministry that was pointed out, but perhaps more powerfully than any was at, at, at his baptism. Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River. Spirit descends like a dove upon him, and he, they hear this voice from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So this mystery of godliness has been revealed. That what was concealed has now been made open, and Jesus has been revealed in the flesh, God in the flesh. He was vindicated in the Spirit, literally to be justified or declared righteous. Man pronounced Jesus guilty. What did they say that he was guilty of? It's a B word. Blasphemy. What was Jesus claiming? That he's the Son of God. That he is God. And so he's condemned for being blasphemous. Condemned by man. Put to death by man. But vindicated by God. God vindicated him by raising from the dead. If Jesus had been a sinner, he'd have stayed dead. Jesus, who had never sinned, lived a perfect life, was perfectly righteous, was crucified on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sin. And God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. He conquered death. Third thing is he was seen by the angels. And scholars differ on, on this meaning. It could be seen by the angels, the ones that fell, the demonic angels, and they certainly saw Jesus crucified on the cross and raised from the dead three days later. But I think more than that, Jesus' ministry is, has angels throughout it. Before he's born, his birth is announced to Mary. His birth is announced to Joseph. And then to the shepherds when he's born. They ministered him in his temptation for 40 days and 40 nights. They ministered at Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood and asking God, is the Father, is there any other way but not my will but your will be done? The angels came to minister to him. They ministered at the tomb. They rolled the stone away and sat on it. When the women came, they talked to him. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And they were there at the ascension. When the disciples at the ascension are just staring up in heaven because Jesus has given them again the great commandment and tells them, wait here in Jerusalem till you receive power. And when you do receive power, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. Right after that, he's ascending into heaven. And the picture I get is the disciples with their mouth open up just going. And it says angels stood beside him and said, why are you men looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who's gone away is coming again. So why don't you do what he told you to do? He's proclaimed among the nations. The word nations means ethnos or race. It means every ethnic group, every race on the planet. The name of Jesus is proclaimed. And there's hope in no other name than Jesus. There's salvation in no other name than Jesus. So he's proclaimed among the nations. He's believed on in the world, literally to have faith in. Preaching kindles faith. The greatest evangelistic movement of that time was in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, when the disciples began proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And it said on that day, 3,000 were saved. 
Isn't that incredible? 3,000. Have y'all ever had that many saved at your church in one day? Has it ever happened again that 3,000 people were saved in one day? If you're a regular at the chapel, you've heard this question before, and you know the answer is yes. 5,000 later in Acts came to faith in Christ, but over 3,000 come to faith in Christ every day on earth today. The gospel is proclaimed among the nations, and men and women of all stripes, all ethnic groups are responding to the gospel. He's believed on in the world, and he's taken up into glory. Six things about Christ. Kind of the basis, the the gospel in six statements, taken up into glory. It had to have been glorious for the disciples to see Jesus lifted up into the clouds. They'd never seen anything like that before. It's amazing what a glorious ascension, but he was ascending into glory where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. But then there's trouble. Let me read the last part of the passage we're looking at. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Paul, at the beginning of this passage, says, I'm writing this so that you can talk to the people you're ministering to about how you conduct yourself in church, in the church, the family of the faith. And and it's a good thing, Timothy, if you'll do that. So Timothy gives a warning. There's opposing elements. The Spirit explicitly says in the later times, people are going to fall away from the faith. So it shouldn't catch us off guard. But it does, doesn't it? If you have someone that's a friend of yours that you thought, this, that, this person, this man or woman, this young person's a believer, and all of a sudden they just kind of walk away from it. it. It disturbs us, and yet that's exactly what the Spirit has already said. That's going to happen in the last days. Explicitly, openly declared by the Spirit. shouldn't surprise us in the later times. The word's not latter. It's not the latter days. It's the later days. And what day is he talking about? That time from the birth of Christ and the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, now, So Paul is writing about the later days, and certainly they apply to us today. What's going to happen in the later days? Some are going to fall away. And, and that even the word fall away almost makes it sound like it was accidental. No, it's purposeful. It's where you've come this close to the truth of the gospel, and you have purposefully said, I won't receive that. I reject that. You depart from your former position. You come close to the truth. Only to leave. In fact, it's, that, it's the parable of the soils that Jesus taught. Some seed is sown upon the pathway and can't have any root. He's talking here about the seed that's sown among the rocky soil that you receive it gladly. Oh yeah, that sounds good. And you have this religious experience, but you never come to saving faith. And so the roots don't develop because you're in rocky soil. You fall away. I'm thinking about a young man at a retreat that I spoke to several years ago. 
he sat on about the second or third row. And I just watched. Have you ever seen somebody that just, you could tell God was all over him? God was convicting this guy. Either he was a believer that was living in sin and God was convicting him or God was right in his face. And I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it, but within about a month of that, the next time I saw him was at his funeral. And I always wondered, did he ever respond to God? Did he ever repent and get life right? Some are going to hear it. Some are going to participate in it and never receive it. They're going to fall away when the going gets tough. And what's worse, when they start having their ears tickled by false teaching. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, understand, in the later times, some are going to fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. They're going to allow their minds to be gravitated towards these deceitful spirits. The word deceitful literally means roving or wandering. That's what the spirits do. They cause you to wander away from the truth. And they don't show up at church and say, I'm a demon and I'd like to preach today. They don't knock on your door with a pitchfork and a pointed tail and say, I'm the devil, sent here to deceive you. They come as angels of light. They come looking right and sounding right. And if you don't know Scripture, you can be deceived, tricked, lied to. Paul says they're teaching doctrines of demons. Here's the the focus of false teaching. It's demonic. And some of it's on television today in the guise of Christian ministry. Be careful. Be aware. This is going to happen in the last days, in the later times. That some who've heard the truth and haven't responded are going to have their ears pointed in a different direction by somebody else that sounds like they're preaching the truth. And yet it doesn't square with Scripture. You know what? After a while of hearing the truth, your conscience is seared. As with a branding iron. You become calloused. Or if you hear a lie so many times, you start thinking, well, maybe there's some truth to that. Don't raise your hand on this one. Have you ever told a lie and started believing it yourself? When I was a teenager, I don't know why somebody did this to me, but right before my 16th birthday, they started telling everybody I was getting this particular kind of car. Keep in mind, this was 100 years ago. The car was a Pontiac Trans Am. They don't, I don't think they make those anymore. I don't even know if they make Pontiacs anymore. Anybody remember the Pontiac Trans Am? It was a sports car. This guy, Mark, in our youth group started telling me, yeah, Robert's getting a Trans Am for his birthday. So I just went with it. Yeah, my parents get me a Trans Am for my birthday. you got to understand, in my family, my parents couldn't afford to buy me a Volkswagen Beetle, a used car. The first car I bought was when my dad took me to the car lot and said, you're going to buy this car and pay for it. So I wasn't getting this Trans Am that was going to cost more in insurance than my first car cost. But I told a lie enough that I thought, you know, maybe my parents are going to get me one. I was kind of disappointed when I turned 16 and I got like a tie or something for my birthday. I don't remember what I got. If you tell a lie enough, you start believing it. If you hear a lie enough, you start believing it. And we live in a generation where there are liars in our midst. And they sound really good. So you've got to know the truth to be able to know that's straight from the pit of hell. That's not the truth about God. That's not what the pages of the Old Testament and New Testament tell me about Jesus. That's false. In fact, there's men who advocate 
and forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from certain foods. Gnosticism became a big deal in the second century, but you see it in the church of the first century. And it was simply this. They taught all matter is evil. So you can't do anything that feeds the flesh. Well, one thing that feeds the flesh is food. So you need to abstain. And, and if you abstain from marriage, don't get married and abstain from certain foods. By that, you will be saved. You'll be right with God if you do those things. And what Paul's saying to Timothy is, that's a lie. These men are teaching error. And people apparently were buying into it. What was going on at the time of the teaching of Paul in First Timothy is there were all these gods that people were worshiping. If you, if you got your Bibles open, look at Acts chapter 19. I want to read something briefly to you because this will give you a little clarification. Acts 19, this isn't on the screen. Acts 19, verse 24. Acts 19, 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, Diana, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon our, this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what the temptation was in the first century. We don't have a temple that people are pointing people to. But people are making money off the false gospel. And we've got to be careful that we don't buy into it. In fact, he says, everything God's created is good. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And so receive it with gratitude. The word gratitude has an element of worship to it. It should... What God does in our lives should cause us to return praise to Him because He's worthy. And He closes by saying, Timothy, if you'll point these things out, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Timothy, I'm writing these things so that you'll know how the church ought to function, how the people ought to behave in the church, how you uphold and support the truth of the gospel in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Let me close with this thought. We live in that kind of generation, folks, where things that are contrary to Scripture, there are people teaching, well, that was just cultural. That wasn't what God intended for all of eternity. No, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. And you can fully rely on the Word of God. But you've got to know it. Be men and women, young people in this culture that say, you know what, that's not true. Let me show you the truth about God. Let's pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can proclaim it. But God, help us to know it. Help us to see the difference in what's right and true and what isn't. 
God, I pray for young people across this auditorium and adults that we would be the post, the pillar, and the support of the truth. And that you would use us in this generation as you used Timothy and his to stand for truth. Help us to proclaim that in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close.